Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. Before we start the show, I wanted to give you some background on the theme for season two of Request for Commits. This season, Nadia and Michael are focusing on unsung heroes. These are folks in open source doing amazing things, but not getting much attention. On that note, if you'd like to share your open source story with us, head to changelaw.com community. This is where you can connect with us as well as thousands of other like-minded developers all over the world. Everyone is welcome. All right, let's get started. Oh, one more thing. If you love this show, do us a favor, share it with a friend or just on iTunes to help others discover the show too. All right, here we go. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Todd Gamblin. Todd is a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, a government-funded national security laboratory in the United States. Todd has worked to bring open source to his peers, including the creation of SPAC, a package manager for high-performance computing. Our focus with Todd was open source and government. We talked about what it's like to open source a project inside the government, how he gathered contributors for SPAC, and why he got involved with NumFocus. We also talked about how funding works in a government context and challenges around using and contributing to open source in a highly regulated environment. So, Todd, you work for the government. Tell us what your actual job is. Um, okay, so, I, I mean, I work for a specific part of government. So, I work for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. It's part of the Department of Energy. And, um, I mean, I'm a computer scientist. That's my job title. We don't really have official job titles here. But, I, I mean, effectively... I'm a, a researcher. I do some project. Um, I'm a project lead, and um, you know I'm also a developer. So um, I work on an open source project, SPAC, which is you know one of the things we're going to talk about. And um, I also lead a bunch of other projects, like I lead a DevOps project here at the lab um, for simulation teams, and uh, I do research in machine learning for parallel uh, performance. And for those unfamiliar, what is Lawrence Livermore? So Lawrence Livermore is one of three labs um, in the National Nuclear Security Agency. So it's part of the DOE, and we're responsible for a whole lot of different national security missions. So that includes things like um, nuclear nonproliferation, making sure that people you know, don't sell nuclear materials. Um, we're also you know, responsible for the U.S. stockpile, making sure that it remains viable. And then we do um, work on a lot of just basic research projects. So we do some climate simulation. We have people working on that. Um, we're part of um, the, I don't know if you remember Obama's like cancer moonshot. We have people working on the that initiative. There's a lot of interesting uh, data analysis and machine learning there and just um, general uh, computation. So like uh, I think 
all sorts of missions at the laboratory are are based on computing and our um, Livermore Computing Center, which is is where all the different clusters are that we run. So I work both with like the research organization and with um, the computing center and also with the the code teams who are from all different parts of the lab. So you play with nuclear weapons all day? I do not play with nuclear weapons all day. Um, so like that. So I mean, what I do is mostly in a support role, right? So like it's either um, we're working with the simulation team. So like yeah, one of the things that we simulate is nuclear weapons. Um, that's true. We also have a whole lot of um, open science codes, and, and so you know we work with all those different teams to help them get their simulation up and running on our machines. And you know my my role is mostly taking what they do, looking at it, and trying to make it go fast. Um, and also just making sure that they run effectively on the machines. Like, you know, so that's why you know, I run this uh, DevOps team. We call it the HPC developer ecosystem team. But that's about you know, collaboration tools. Um, we're trying to deploy secure CI um, for our center and, um, you know, work with the teams to help them like package and, and share all the different parts of their their codes. Um, and then in like a research role, what I do is you know, I work with a lot of students in academia. I, you know, I have postdocs who work for me and we'll usually, you know, talk to the code teams, try to figure out like what their problems are, um, what kind of things are they having issues with in terms of making sure that their simulations run fast. And then we try to come up with ways to speed them up. So like my background is really performance tools. We used to, we'll, we'll go and, you know, look at a parallel simulation and try to measure what's it doing at runtime. Where's it spending its time? We'll use like profilers, trace tools. Um, is it, you know, bound on memory? Is it bound on CPU? Could we do vectorization better? Stuff like that. And so, yeah, basically we support the code teams in lots of different ways. Cool. So in, in terms of like your team and everything, I mean, is this a bunch of people in the same physical location? Like, it, I think when people hear of a lab, they're thinking like, you know, some place with a giant hydrant collider or something. But is is the institution like slightly virtualized as well? Like you mentioned, you're working with like different students and stuff like that. Are they all like on site in the same place or or is the institution a little bit more virtualized? Um, so I guess I, I would say it's both because I mean, Livermore itself is a it's a one square mile laboratory in, in Livermore, California. So it's like an hour from San Francisco. You know, we do have a giant laser here. Like, so we have the National Ignition Facility, which is the the world's largest and I think highest energy laser. Basically, that's like 192 beams that focus on something the size like smaller than a pea and try to implode it. And so that's that's a fusion experiment. So, um, you know, some of the simulations are are simulating that, and so we sort of iterate with them. Um, and so that's more like on site stuff. So we would you know go and visit a code team. We would or they would come to our office. We have meetings like a normal company. Um, I sit in a building, you know, with the big computers. So basically like I have an office building and there's essentially like a 48,000 square foot data center attached to it. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on here, but, um, you know, we also collaborate across the DOE and, and with a whole lot of universities. So, um, you know, I have telcons all the time. I have collaborators at like university of Delaware, university of Arizona, um, university of Illinois, other places with students. And then we also collaborate with people across the DOE. So like the Exascale project that um, I think I mentioned earlier, that's a collaboration of six different laboratories. So it's all three of the um, NNSA labs, which is that that's our, our agency. That's the National Nuclear Security Agency. That's one part of DOE. And then there's also the Office of Science. And so you may have heard of like Argonne um, or Oak Ridge National Laboratory or uh, Berkeley Lab. Those are Office of Science laboratories and we have telcons with people there all the time. And you know, to some extent, they're, they're similar because they have large physics experiments on their sites 
too. Um, and they also tend to have, you know, all those labs have big computing centers. Um, but, you know, we travel around to different labs and, and also to conferences and, you know, do things like present papers. So it's a fairly, you know, diverse job uh, working for the DOE. I, I like it a lot because I'm not, I'm not always working with, um, you know, programmers or, or computer scientists. I also get to talk to people who are doing like physical sciences and other stuff. So it's a, it's a pretty cool environment from that perspective. Can you talk a little bit about your lab's history with open source? Um, I think you've mentioned in previous conversations with you that your lab has open sourced a bunch of other types of projects before. Um, and I was wondering also, how did you personally get into open source in your current role? So, I mean, if you look at Livermore's history, I, I think, you know, from the lab's founding in like 1952, we've we've deployed fast computers. And, and so like, you know, building software for them has been a, a long part of the lab's history. And, you know, we, we built this thing called the Livermore time sharing system. I say we, but, you know, I wasn't, this is way before my time. Um, and that was one of the first, you know, time sharing operating systems to, to run on like a supercomputer. And that was so that, you know, the physicists could um, swap out time um, for their simulations. You know, we also used to build compilers here. Like apparently we had a compiler team. There was something called the Pastel Compiler. I think Richard Stallman actually wanted to base the original version of GCC on that, but um, I believe the memory requirements for it were way too high for ordinary uh, computers. <laughs> and and so, you know, it wasn't going to run on something that wasn't like one of our supercomputers. So he went and, and built GCC on his own. So, yeah, and then, you know, as as the machines evolved, I mean, we've deployed, you know, more and more fast machines. And, and in the 90s, they started looking more like clusters. So, um, and we were sort of, one of the first labs to look at um, deploying, you know, Linux on our machines and and maintaining our own Linux distribution for HPC machines. So HPC is high performance computing. Um, so we did that. Um, we have a developer here who ported uh, ZFS to Linux from Solaris, and and so he maintains that port. That's pretty popular. And you know, I think in general, like in the research community, people have done open source a lot. I don't think that necessarily means that they've, you know, taken steps to popularize or necessarily build like really large communities around their 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 tools because it's kind of a, a niche area. But, um, you know, we do have lots of open source projects. So ZFS, I think, is, you know, one of the major ones now. And then um, Slurm is, um, is used all over the place. And that was um, invented at Livermore. That's a resource manager. So it's, it's basically like a batch system for submitting jobs to clusters and managing the nodes and the, the memory um, and, you know, allocating time to users. These are pretty like high end use cases. Like, who are the other users of these open source projects, um, other than than Lawrence Livermore? Um, so, other labs deploy Slurm, um, and actually, like a, a lot of you know university computing centers will will run that. So, like, I, you know, our Linux clusters all run Slurm. Even our like IBM BlueGene machine, which is like a million and a half cores, runs Slurm. Um, and other national labs also run run Slurm on their systems. The name um, makes me laugh every time. Yeah, I think it's actually, I think it is from Futurama. <laughs> so, so yeah, we, we have lots of interestingly named tools. Um, and then, you know, ZFS, I think, is used in industry. It's, um, I'm, I'm not a file systems expert, um, but, I, you know, I know that a lot of companies have started using ZFS on Linux. Um, so um, it's, it's fairly widely used all over the place. We, we ported ZFS because our interest is in, um, so we, we also have developers who work on a parallel file system called Luster, um, and that's what we run on our, our clusters. And, and we use, Luster is basically like, it's a parallel file system where there's a, a local file system that it's it's based on. And so, um, you know, 
Bluster runs on top of ZFS in our current configuration, and, and we, um, we're, we're pretty psyched about that because we get some good performance out of it. Was SPAC the first project that you had open source at Lawrence Livermore yourself? Um, it wasn't, actually. So in addition to SPAC, you know, I've had a bunch of different research projects. Um, for, for like my PhD, I worked on a scalable clustering algorithm. And so that, that's an open source. It's called Muster. It's on GitHub, too. And that's, that was sort of for finding nodes in a parallel application that had very similar performance characteristics. Um, I don't think that really caught on. It was, you know, it was sort of a research project. And then it wasn't, you know, generally useful like a package manager is. We also had like a project here uh, called, well, like, originally I wanted to call it Clown Car, um, but that was deemed <laughs> not serious enough. And so we renamed it to CRAM, which stands for Clown Car Renamed to Appease Management. Um, and <laughs> uh, Government. <laughs> and so that that's you know that 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 dealt with a real problem that we had here um our when we deployed the sequoia machine which is the big ibm you know, blue gene q system originally people you know anticipated running maybe like 200 maybe 400 jobs um at a time on that thing and they were thinking that you know each job would be you know maybe 10,000 cores or something like that on the order of 10,000 um and so now, you know, the, the mission has sort of changed. And, and one of the things that we're very interested in is uncertainty quantification. So trying to figure out, you know, what inputs is a simulation sensitive to? And we decided that we wanted to run lots and lots of small jobs on the machine. So, you know, we had people who really wanted to run a million and a half one core jobs on the system. And the resource manager couldn't handle it um, because it imposed some uh, OS requirements, you know, sockets, um, memory on the front end nodes of the system. So we would have to have like a process per um, job that was running in the system and they couldn't handle that many. So CRAM basically takes one job and, and splits it into lots of them and manages that sort of on the cluster as opposed to on the front end. So it's kind of a stopgap until we get a more scalable resource manager. Um, so, you know, those, those are just some examples. But I would say that like, you know, in the research world, there's lots of open source software. I think, you know, that's kind of the default for, for people who are doing uh, research, publishing papers about it. We have a compiler project here called Rose. It's a source to source compiler. Um, that's been open source for a very long time. And actually like they, they've gotten a lot of traction, you know, before, before my project, they've, they've been really well uh, funded by different parts of the DOE historically. Do you have a sense of how long it's been the default? I mean, because it hasn't always been the default to do everything open source. So do you know like when that kind of shift happened or or just like as long as you've been in it, you've, you've been able to to do everything open source? Um, as long as I've been in it. Yeah. So that would. So I started here at the lab in like 2008. So I know that it goes back further than that. Um, so like our early efforts with like TOS, which is our um, that's our Linux distribution is based on Red Hat. That was in like the in you know I think '99 or like the early 2000s, and actually there is um, there's a policy document from the DOE from let's see like 2004, and and that basically says that um, for all the you know software developed under the um, Advanced Simulation and Computing Initiative, um, which is what funds most of our machines, I can talk about that as well. It should be open source um, unless there's you know a reason not to make it open source. So like. It's, so, like an open source nuclear weapon simulation sounds like a really bad idea, um, but you know some of the other software that we developed to make our software uh, to make our systems run that's like complete that's pure computer science. Like we can put it out there, and and other people can use it and benefit from it, and you know, and and they do. So there's actually yeah, there's a DOE document that says we should make all this software open source from like 2004, 
And it's interesting because I think you know that's something that we're struggling with now is that like we do have um, an IP organization as part of uh, the laboratory. And so, you know, Livermore has had some successful commercial software come out of some of our projects. So like I think Dyna is it's a physics simulation uh, package that I think a lot of auto manufacturers use to model things like crashes. And, you know, that's been very popular um, in you know, the industry, and it, it was originally a Livermore product, and I think we've made a significant number of royalties out of it. But other projects like, you know, SPAC or a lot of this infrastructure stuff, I, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to sell that. And, and I don't necessarily think that we should, because like we're in sort of a niche here. Like, you know, there aren't that many sites that do large scale high performance computing. And, um, you know, I think we have the same motivation that like a lot of these larger industry open source uh, projects do. Um, we want to share resources among the different uh, computing sites and try to develop a lot of the infrastructure together instead of um, doing, you know, instead of being siloed at different laboratories and, and developing it independently. Because I think it's it's just redundant effort at that point. And so what's it like when you think you have something that you might want to open source? What does that process look like for your lab? Do you have to talk to the IP uh, office? Well, yeah. So we, <laughs> the IP office is, you know, they want to make sure that the thing that you're putting out there open source is not something that we could potentially get royalties off of. And I mean, that's kind of interesting because government in general, technically, uh, I, you know, I don't think we're actually allowed to have intellectual property. Um, if, if we were a government, if we were actually part of the federal government, but we're a contractor. And so because we're a contractor and because we're run by this LLC, we can, you know, own own things and and potentially license them out under under commercial licenses, I believe. So I'm, I'm not an expert on that. But yeah, so we have to go through the IP organization when we put things out there. For most of my stuff, um, getting the approval isn't actually that hard. It's the actual process that's kind of tedious. So like Livermore's software release process involves burning two CDs and like carrying them to three buildings throughout the laboratory, one of which is in like a classified area. And, um, you know, so so like I can't have some of my postdocs go do that because they can't go into classified areas. So like th that part is kind of tedious and there's forms that you have to fill out and they're actual paper forms. So that, that can be frustrating. But, you know, in general, like the approval is is pretty good. And I think, you know, the, the lab is is OK at a, at a high level with with open source software. And, and they, they actually, you know, are starting to recognize the benefits. I think, you know, the thing that, that I would really like to do here is um, start thinking about, you know, open source a little more carefully in terms of like, you know, what is our open source strategy with this thing? Look at open source as a potential software sustainability strategy for DOE projects. And, and you know, that's kind of like what we're doing with SPAC. Um, we, we've actively tried to build a community around that. And, um, you know, depending on, on what it is, you know, maybe that's a good strategy, maybe it's not. There's some things that um, we want to develop internally that we want to, you know, keep um, a well-staffed team on. And there's other things that we can probably share effort with other laboratories on and that we would want to build like a larger community, maybe even out to like academia or, or industry around. And I think like it really depends on what it is and, you know, what, what the software is, which one of those things you want to do. You know, I, I was on a working group here that, that was trying to come up with a, I guess it started out as like a software engineering working group. And, and I think by the end of it, we had changed the name of the working group to software sustainability. I think everyone thought we were going to come back and say, okay, everyone should do waterfall or everyone should do agile. And here are the tools that you should use. Um, and what it ended up being was, you know, we, we think we need more than that to sustain our, our software here. We need an actual plan for how's the project going to develop? Who are we going to include in the community? Who do we think are our, is our you know, target audience for this thing? And, and how are we going to sustain it? Who's going to contribute to it? So we, we sort of came up with a plan that, that centered around that instead of trying to be prescriptive about, you know, how people can develop their, their software. Thank you.
After the break, Nadia and Michael talk with Todd about the backstory of SPAC and where it's going. We talk about SPAC's growing community, how they're finding contributors, especially in a government context. We also talk through the details of SPAC becoming a numb-focused affiliated project and what that means for it. All this and more after the break. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Earlier this year, they made some big announcements. They've expanded their offering to include high memory instances in $5 Linodes. High memory instances are optimized for memory intensive workloads like high performance databases, in-memory caching, rendering and data processing, and the new one gigabyte Linode is their lowest priced instance ever, just $5 a month. This makes it way easier to choose Linode every time you spin up a new server. Linode also increased the outbound network speed limit on all plans to a minimum of 1000 megabits, super fast. Check out linode.com changelog to learn more and get $20 in hosting credit. So Todd, you've mentioned SPAC a couple of times um, as an open source project that you've created while at Lawrence Livermore. Could you explain a little bit about what SPAC is uh, for people that are not high performance computing people and what inspired you to create it? So I mean, I may have an easier time explaining SPAC to people who are not high performance computing people than, than to oh, people good. who are high performance computing people. In the sense that like, I think people who are not high performance computing people are, are familiar with package managers. Um, so SPAC's a package manager. Um, it's not a binary package manager. It builds things from source. And it's it's for running on these large machines that we care about. Um, so, you know, that's anything from like a, a Cray uh, machine or like an IBM BlueJean or just a Linux cluster. We run lots of different things like that. And um, I think, you know, the, the reason that I built my own package manager is is because um, the way that we distribute software in HPC is kind of different from you know what you would expect from I, I guess most uh, software products. People actually build um, their code from source on the supercomputers, um, typically because they want to optimize it for the hardware, um, but also because that's kind of how scientists put their code out there. Like if you if you download a simulation code, um, it comes as you know a, a tarball, and it probably has dependencies on maybe some math libraries or like a numerical solver or something. And and these can get really complicated. So like if you look at like the climate community, um, they have just a whole bunch of, you know, Fortran modules that are tied together in different ways. Our codes tend to be like C++, um, some C and maybe some Fortran like kind of down in the, the numerical libraries, but, uh, you know, primarily they're, they're C and C++. And we have, you know, Python drivers for some of those things, or and I think recently we're getting into to Lua, but yeah. So one simulation could be you know forty seven, seventy, maybe a hundred uh, libraries in C, C plus plus, Fortran, and Python, and and so building that and linking it all together um, and getting fast um, native libraries there is is kind of hard. And and the other thing that we care about is um, exotic compilers. 
So like we don't just build with GCC, we build with like GCC, Clang, Intel compiler, Portland group compiler, and then maybe like the Cray compiler on the Cray machines. Lots of different ways to optimize your code. And there really wasn't a good package manager for um, experimenting with all that and swapping compilers and compiler flags um, and for, for building lots of different versions of things. I think, you know, another problem with the software ecosystem here is that uh, people will distribute their code and, you know, maybe it relies on a very specific version of some research library because maybe that, you know, research library is, is published like by a university. Maybe they don't have the greatest release cycle set up or maybe they don't even do releases. Maybe they just, you know, publish to the head of their repo. And so it's hard to rely on some of those things. And so we, we have to be specific about, you know, a specific commit, maybe a specific revision or even like a specific, you know, version where something isn't broken. Um, and you may get, you know, two packages that depend on two different versions of something. So we needed something to support all that. So essentially like SPAC is basically like a tool to build software the way that I was building it, where I would have lots and lots of different versions of things. And essentially like any um, dependency graph uh, that you make is, um, is a new version. And so we assign a hash to that. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's a lot like um, if people are familiar with like Nix or, or Geeks or um, some of these, you know, they call them functional package managers. It's a lot like that, but we have the added requirement that we want to rely on um, the vendor libraries. So like when you get a supercomputer, it comes with a, an optimized version of MPI. That's the message passing interface. That's what people use to communicate among the processes in their application. And so we want to be able to build packages that actually rely on vendor products as well as things that we can build from open source. And so putting all that together led to back. And so the, the idea is that you would be able to take, um, you'd be able to make a package that could build across all those different platforms and that, you know, people would be able to install it and say, you know, SPAC install foo and, and have foo, which is not generally the experience on supercomputers. <laughs> Interesting. Like just hearing, some of the things that you have to be particularly concerned about, and it, it feels almost like you're doing open source, but for a smaller but more engaged community of users beyond your lab. So it's like, it sounds like it's a lot of it is for other labs or that type of audience more than a general public, which might be how we normally think of open source. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for a lot of the simulation codes, um, the usage model, it, I think it's very different from what you see in like web development. So depending on the team, some of the teams, you know, are their own users. And so it's a research project. They're developing this thing and they're testing out different versions of it and they're doing experiments with like the latest version of it. Um, but they might rely on like some, some math libraries or something. Other teams, uh, you know, do publish software that can be used by lots of people and they'll actually bother to, to package it um, themselves. But, you know, I think the build process on, on these machines is so complicated that, that you know, your, your typical computational scientist doesn't want to get into all those details. They want to focus on the science. And then, you know, we actually talked to different teams in the community and tried to figure out, like, what what's your deploy process? And and so some of them had good practices and others said, well, you know, we we have like one user on every machine because we build the code once and there's this guy who, who runs it for everyone. And then everyone talks to him, they send him their inputs and he goes and runs it and he sends them the outputs. And we're like, that doesn't seem scalable to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... That, that is how some of the teams operate. And, and you know, it, it has worked for them historically. I think, um, you know, now we're, we're starting to see more sharing in, in the community. And, and also this sort of push for exascale computing has caused people to really think about how portable their code is. And, and so things like this have started to matter to them. We have people who are really concerned with performance portability, which is another good reason to package your software. 
um, or and, and to use libraries that work across different architectures. Basically, like I think, you know, for a long time since like the 90s, if, if you could run on like a Linux cluster, you were probably OK. And, you know, your, the the processor architecture on a Cray maybe didn't look so different from what was on a Linux machine. But now, um, you know, if you want to get a really powerful system, you might need to use GPUs. You might need to use like a Xeon Phi, which is like a mini core from um, Intel. Or, you know, maybe you want to run on ARM or, or some other um, exotic type of architecture. And you have to take the same parallel code and, and get it to run in each of those models. And so, like, you know, a GPU is very different from, like, a, a Xeon Phi in terms of how you would parallelize code for it. Um, and it's very different from, you know, your multi-core processor. So I think people have started to realize that they have to rely on libraries for that. They really want to, you know, separate that concern out and, and give it to someone else who works on, you know, maybe, like, the, the math library or the uh, or some abstraction layer for, for their loops. Um, where historically, I think, you know, the tuning was not so different across the different architectures that you had to, you know, outsource the task to someone else. The teams could get by by writing parallel code for their own system. And so how does that play into um, thinking about getting contributors for an open source project like SPAC? Because you, I imagine, I know it's like SPAC has a lot of contributors and I imagine it comes from, there are only so many people that are using SPAC in the first place or your total audience is smaller um, so do you feel like you kind of know everyone who could contribute to it? Or are there people out there that you think should be contributing who aren't aware of it? Um, so I think that, you know, one really intriguing place where we could get more contributors would be like industry. I think definitely we could we could grow the audience for it right now. I think there's a lot of people who still just build things by hand. But, you know, we did. I think, you know, when you when you look for contributors, you really have to think about what's the structure of the community. And so for HPC, actually, um, I think, you know, there's there's maybe more roles than than people are used to in the software community. Like, I think, you know, you're used to thinking like developers and users. Um, but actually, we have so there's users, there's like scientists who want to get on a machine and they want to run some application and, and, you know, do some kind of simulation. There's also like the developers who actually make that simulation. They may want to distribute their their tool. And then, you know, there's there are people who run HPC centers. And, and so actually, like in in this field. Um, your typical HPC center has a user support team and they deploy um, a lot of the common libraries and things that people need on their system. And so actually, like one of the motivations for SPAC was that that particular task was getting to be very overwhelming at Livermore Computing, where, where I am. And, um, you know, in, in my case, like I was a researcher and I wanted to deploy things on the machines for um, students and, you know, postdocs who are working for me um, who don't necessarily know how to build all these things, but they want to run them. Um, and then we also have a user support team that deals with the application teams. And so they deploy software for them. And then some of the application teams actually deploy their own software. So like, I think, you know, the, the original contributors to SPAC were, were people, um, who were at these HPC centers who were just sick of building things by hand day in and day out and wanted to, um, deploy things on these machines. Um, and like our deployment model is a little different from what you might be used to from the cloud. Like uh, most of these machines have like a shared file system across all the nodes and we'll go and build a copy of an application and put it out there. Um, and the users can use these things called modules. Um, so they can say like module load, uh, say hyper or, you know, Petsy or some, some library. Um, and that gets, you know, the tool into their environment so that they can use it. So yeah, that we, we targeted the HPC centers to try to get them to work together initially. Um, but I think, you know, it turned out that we started getting more contributions from, actual application developers and people kind of hacking on HPC code on their own. And I think that's actually served to really grow the community. But that wasn't something that was necessarily planned. 
So, so the other HPC centers, are they as adept at open source as Lawrence Livermore is? Do they have similar kind of policies around it? Or are you a little bit ahead in that regard? Um, I don't know that we're you know, necessarily better or worse than the other labs. I think like there's strength and weaknesses in terms of the process. I think like there, there is no standard process for releasing open source software. It kind of varies from lab to lab. Um, in terms of actually having, you know, popular research software, I think like so, you know, Argon has um, worked on mPitch for a really long time, and mPitch is like the most popular, or well, it's it's the I don't know if it's the most popular because there's Open MPI now, but it's it's a major MPI implementation, and so they've maintained that for years, and they've actually gotten lots of funding to do that, or or at least some funding. And then you know they also have developed math libraries like Petsy, and you know Oak Ridge has developed I/O libraries. I think you know in large part, I mean all the different laboratories have have had some large open source uh, project that they that they've put out there. So, you know, I think, you know, DOE has had a, an open source software ecosystem for a while. I don't know that, you know, they've always had licenses or, or thought about, you know, the the licensing aspects of, of these things or, you know, thought about building communities around them. I think a lot of them are sort of, you know, maybe confined to a team at a particular laboratory who maintains the tool. And so, you know, accepting pull requests wasn't really easy before um, GitHub. So, you know, even setting up infrastructure outside your laboratory could be difficult. Like, you know, a lot of Livermore teams have had trouble setting up, like, all the hosting infrastructure that you need to to host an actual project with collaboration tools and, like, you know, subversion, things like that. Um, so we've had people actually host their projects outside the laboratory um, to, to make it easier to get the hosting done for their open source communities. And I think not all the teams were willing to do that. But, you know, at, at Livermore, like recently, we've we've consolidated our GitHub presence. We've gotten more and more people to join the GitHub organization for LLNL. Um, and I think it's becoming easier. And so more and more people are um, are getting into that and, and really starting to think about how they how they put their software out there and how they do build communities around it. I wonder how much I know government is not a monolithic thing. So maybe just for you guys, how much of open source practices are being influenced by industry versus they're doing it on their own. Um, do they care what like companies are doing now with open source and looking at that and saying, oh, we should do it like that? Um, like getting on GitHub, stuff like that? Or is it well, in their own bubble? So I think different people are, are pushing that at different laboratories. I mean, it just really depends on the part of the laboratory. I mean, like you could have two groups on the same hallway who feel very differently about this. We have some teams who are you know, reticent to put their development version out there. They don't. They don't want to release things before you know they're they're done. They don't know about doing development out on GitHub. And then some of them have like actual sensitivity concerns around what they're doing that that maybe prevent them from from doing that. Or at least that you know the lab doesn't provide 100% clear guidelines on you know when when you can do development out on GitHub and when you can do development um, inside. Like you can release your software, but you know it was for that version. What do you do about like incremental changes to the thing? And can you can you host development outside? Um, yeah, so we have people here who have, you know, really pushed to get, um, like, so Ian Lee, the guy who presented at GitHub Universe, um, on Livermore's open source, uh, software, he really pushed to get people to, to consolidate there and to, to use open tools, to use, um, sites like read the docs, um, and stuff like that. And other labs have people like that as well. But, you know, like I said, I think the labs have for a long time, you know, the software projects, they, they don't think about, you know, building a community around it. So, and, and they don't think about it in the same way that industry does now in this, in the way that I saw, like when I was at the, uh, open source leadership summit at the Linux foundation event, it seemed like a whole lot of companies had 
bought into this notion that like there was just basic infrastructure that they didn't want to pay for themselves um, and that they wanted to build communities around so that, you know, they could you know, focus on differentiation and not, you know, doing the same infrastructure stuff over and over again. And I think, you know, I'm pushing for that here um, for, for us to start thinking that way about a lot of our infrastructure projects. And I think other labs are starting to do that too. I wouldn't say though that, you know, historically the labs have, you know, been against that. I just, I just don't know that they've thought about collaborating among the different labs as much. In terms of where you decide to start going with SPAC, um, I noticed that uh, SPAC joined NumFocus as um, an affiliated project. And I was wondering for, I guess, anyone who's listening, um, NumFocus is an umbrella organization for a lot of scientific and academic related open source projects. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering, like, why did you decide to join NumFocus? What does that mean to you? Um, and what was the process like? So it was actually, I, I don't know, I just, it was kind of on a whim. I went to the NumFocus webpage and and I, I looked at their supported projects and their affiliated projects. I mean, I like all the stuff that NumFocus is doing. Uh, they're, they're doing all kinds of awesome things, like especially for the Python community um, and R. Um, and I, I think that was after, that was right after Fernando Perez, the the Jupiter guy, at, and he's at Berkeley Lab, had come out and given a talk here. So I don't know, I was just, I was inspired to go and do it. And they had, you know, a list of requirements. They're like, you can be a NumFocus affiliated project if you do this, this, and this. So I, I wrote them an email and said, okay, here's why SPAC um, fits all these criteria. I think, you know, one of them was you had to have a community of contributors. Um, you had to have more than like three core developers or, or something else. And you had to um, make significant use of their supported projects. And so I just, I wrote an email that says, you know, we do that. We package like 12 out of 18 of them and um, we have a community. And so what do you think? Could, could SPAC be an affiliated project? And I mean, I guess, what does it mean to me? Like, well, I, I like what those guys are doing. Um, and they said that, you know, if, if you put your project on the NumFocus webpage that, you know, that's, they can encourage people to contribute to your project. So I think for me, it was, you know, I'd like to be associated with this community so that potentially these other scientific developers could look at SPAC as a, as a potential package manager that they could use. Um, so it's a way to get contributors and maybe users. You said something interesting earlier, which is that you've gotten more contributors from the user side of things than you have from the the sort of like people maintaining the cluster side. Um, and I'm wondering if you, do you think that that's because you've democratized the the whole role a little bit more and so you've made it easier and, and gotten it more accessible to them? Or do you think that it's just a difference in how those people think about the project and open source and contributions? Like, is it a, is it a cultural difference or is it actually just like a, a skill set difference? Um, I think it might be a cultural difference. Um, so, you know, one thing I found with the HPC centers is that, you know, they, they don't adopt things easily. They have processes in place that they use to deploy software. And so that's been more of a socialization effort, like talking to them and saying, we're really behind this. Um, this is a solid thing that you can rely on. And um, we have developers here at Livermore who are working on SPAC. Um, and, and we will work with you and help you to port its new platform. So, like, for example, one thing we did to get uh, NERSC, which is Lawrence Berkeley Labs supercomputing center on board, um, is, you know, we we worked with them to actually uh, port uh, SPAC to work in the Cray environment. And and that was a fair amount of work, but um, they actually put in some developer effort and, and so did we. Um, and we thought that was valuable because we run on Cray's too. For like the, I think one of the things that we did with SPAC that was really helpful for getting like kind of more casual users uh, to contribute was, I mean, we really, we looked at like Homebrew and some of these other projects. I mean, SPAC's package format is based on Homebrew. It's just Python and not, and not Ruby. Um, we, we looked at, what we could do to make it really easy to download SPAC and, and install a package. So all you really have to do with SPAC is 
clone it. It doesn't require you to be able to run, you know, pip or some other Python package manager. You can you can just clone it, and then you can run the spec uh, executable out of the out of the directory there. And so I think that has helped, you know, get get the regular uh, hackers to start using it. Um, that and we we specifically chose Python um, because, you know, Python's a popular language for scientific computing, um, and you know there. I, I should say that SPAC is not like the first attempt to build an HPC package manager. Um, there have been others. So like Oak Ridge had an internal package manager that was sort of based on homebrew, but it was written in Ruby. And and they had a lot of trouble getting people in this community to write packages because nobody wanted to learn Ruby. And there was another package manager. Um, there, there's another actually popular package manager that's written in Python from HPC at, at the University of Ghent. So that's in Belgium. Um, it's called Easy Build, um, and they've they've done really good things for um, HPC packaging. But their tool is it's focused um, it's focused mostly on I'd say administrators of clusters, and um, it doesn't make it easy to say you know do things in your home directory. You can, um, but I think it's not you know the model that people are used to where they just say you know install this thing, and then you know they're mostly focused is they're focused on being like an installation and build tool, um, and they don't have a lot of the package management features like you know uninstalling software. Um, and managing dependencies after uh, the the packages are installed that that we tried to to put in to make things easy. I guess you know I was kind of modeling um, the SPAC contribution model on Homebrew because that seemed like you know a successful thing. It's actually something that people in this community use on like their Macs, and um, it seemed like they did a really good job of making it easy to contribute. So you know to a large extent, I think it was because um, we made it easy for people to run it in their home directory that that got us the the casual contributors. Right, yeah. It's, it sounds like the, the big differentiator for you has been focusing on the users rather than on, you know, the kind of the cluster maintainers. Um, and, and, you know, low-lining with NumFocus is part of that because most of what they work on is there. Being in Python yeah. is definitely part of that too. Coming up, we get into funding for SPAC and how Todd keeps this thing alive what it's like working on a project from grant to grant versus ongoing programmatic support, and the challenges for open source and government, especially the Department of Energy. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, go to hired.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. Uh, so let's dig into it a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how you get funding uh, for your particular projects. You mentioned um, a couple projects already that get you know a fair amount of funding. How does the funding flow into to your project specifically? Okay, so for SPAC, I mean, right now we are programmatically funded. So, and what that means is that we're we're funded by a program. Um, and I guess you know, in 
in DOE, um, in the government in general, a program is like is a giant source of funding that's that's been allocated potentially by by Congress. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the best kind of funding because it doesn't necess- it doesn't end unless you know something drastic happens. Fingers crossed. And you're basically doing production work at that point, or you're you're doing some you know important uh, research project, and you have milestones. And I think you know that that's fairly stable funding. There's lots of research funding in government and, and in DOE. So you know you, we have an internal funding source. So like for all the grants that we get at Livermore, um, we we tax them, and we have this thing called LDRD, and I think you know a lot of the other labs do too. It's called lab directed research and development. So if you are you know doing research, you can propose um, a project there. That's not necessarily for development though, um, and so I think that's one of the complications. Um, there's competitive funding grants from um, the Office of Science, and so that's another part of uh, of, of DOE. That's over on it, it's outside the NNSA, but you know we can apply for funding from there. Um, and in fact, like a lot of our basic science research is funded by that. And then like internally, we have some funding pots that that they're discretionary. So basically, like the management of like the computation organization at LNL has um, discretionary money that that you can go after. I think it's it's a more informal proposal process, but that's for things like hardening and, um, you know, maybe porting something to a new platform, things like that. So it's sort of more mundane things, not, you know, way out there uh, research. So I think those are the main ways that people get funded. Um, other things that people have been known to do are there's there's a whole um, SBIR program in the federal government. So are you familiar with that? Oh. Um, it's the Small Business Innovation Research. That is funding for um, small businesses to get started. And so a lot of you know things that started out as maybe programmatic projects and then sort of outgrew them, they will spin off you know a small company um, and then apply for SBIR funding. So that's that's a fairly common thing to happen. And like academic teams will do that too. We we've got some collaborators who build like uh, parallel programming models who've gone and spun off companies for things like that. So I mean, and there's there are a whole lot of ways to get funded. Navigating all that I think is is fairly difficult. And then you know one observation that I guess I would say. Um, I have about the whole process is that like there there is a lot of research funding in our area um, for you know cutting edge things, but as far as like actually maintaining the software, that is not considered nearly as much. So like the value is placed on like the cutting edge research and publishing papers and building you know prototypes. But then you know actually turning that into a product, you kind of there's like a there's a gap between um, the research funding and the the production funding that you have to sort of cross. Um, and I think doing that is often a lot of work. So you need to socialize your thing. You need to convince someone who controls programmatic funding, um, that they need this thing. Um, and so like oftentimes that's getting it into one of our simulation codes, making them rely on it. That's something that would catch people's interest. Other things would be making it a critical product for like the compute center. So like if, if we're actually using it to deploy clusters, and we need it, and it makes us a lot more efficient. That's another way that you could get programmatic funding. Um, but I think you know, in general, like it depends on what the software is and, and you know what mission it supports, um, how you get uh, funding like that. Like there's also like a distinction between um, hard money and soft money. Are you guys familiar with that from like academic research? So yep. like if hard money would be like the programmatic money, where you know it's ongoing, um, it doesn't necessarily go away. It's sort of it's it's either like you know overhead for the organization, or it's you know part of how you know Livermore is, is supported over time. Um, soft money is stuff that you have to apply for, and it tends to have a short lifetime. So like if you get a research grant from like our internal LDRD process or from um, the Office of Science, then it might end after like three or five years. 
Um, and so you need to have an exit plan or something um, that you want to do or you know, some, some way to productize the thing after that or some other way to get funding. And so usually I think, you know, the exit plan for a lot of projects here is um, get programmatic funding for the thing. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And so there's definitely, you know, it, it's not an easy task to get a project funded, I would say, and, and to get it to grow. I think that's pretty similar to um, elsewhere. Nobody cares about maintenance, huh? Well, right. And and I think that's actually, you know, I I don't think people think about maintenance as much as they should. Like, I, th I think pe people think that once you do the research that uh, it's magic or something and, and the software continues to, to work because, you know, you've already done the development for it. But, I mean, there's a ton of maintenance that we have to do. And so we're pretty conscious of um, the maintenance costs for things. I think, you know, depending on the part of the organization it is, like the, the compute center here is very conscious of the maintenance costs. I don't necessarily think that the people who are running uh, research programs are always um, aware of that or, you know, thinking about how the thing might take off after the after the research program. And, and you know, that's not 100% true because there are programs like um, tech transfer is something that we care a lot about. We're supposed to make products viable for industry and, and we... People like it when you do that. Um, but on the software side, I think that I think one thing is that the labs like we're we're fundamentally a, a science organization, right? We have like a science mission um, and, and we have like national security missions that we support. And, and so those are the main focus of the lab. Um, and so software is kind of, you know, it's something that supports those missions. But I don't necessarily think that we think about software maintenance in the same way that um, a software company or a dot com would. Um, I don't think there's as much consciousness of the ongoing maintenance costs and, and of what it takes to, to support software long term. So, like for example, for, for our simulation codes, I think there was a study done and um, we found that, you know, the number of engineers per like lines of code um, that they had to support and maintain um, on our teams was a lot. Um, we, we had a, a lot more lines of code per engineers than than industry teams do. And so that was interesting to me just from a, you know, what do we think about maintenance uh, perspective? I feel like we're covering some of the instability in the funding, but like when we're kind of focused on that um, and what it doesn't do. But I'm just trying to compare this to other funding sources that we've talked about. Like, you know, if you start a startup, you're going to have to go out and beg for money every two years. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you do grant funding, you're going to spend a year to get a year of funding and then have to beg for money again year on year on year on for grants. So I think compared to those funding sources, it's actually relatively stable. It, it is. The programmatic funding is definitely stable compared to those. And I think that's a good thing, right? Because like, I think you've talked about on this show um, in the past of, you know, maybe, you know, may, maybe software is a public good, right? Maybe the infrastructure is something that, you know, should be funded by um, some part of government for, for maintenance. And like, I think the thing that you have to figure out there is which software products have something to do with the mission that the government cares about, um, because that's, you know, that's the stuff they're going to pay for. So, you know, and, and like on our side, you know, the, the things that I'm kind of pushing for are we, we ought to think about things that could have broader impact. We ought to think about things that we could build communities around because then we could get both, you know, contributors for our projects. Um, and also, you know, the investment would pay off for us because we'd be um, we'd be supporting, you know, something and getting more out than we put in. And that's actually something that, you know, I've, I've tried to point out with SPAC. So, like, I have this this chart that shows that, like, you know, here's. Here's the amount of programmatic uh, funding that we have for SPAC. It's like, you know, two engineers or something like that. And 
here's all the contributions that we've gotten. Like, you know, over the course of a year, you know, the number of packages developed by Livermore went from like almost like 100% of the packages in SPAC to, um, you know, like less than 25%. So we're getting most of our packages now from external contributors. And that's stuff that we wouldn't have ever been able to sustain ourselves. Um, and so I think we have to find places like that and, you know, apply the stable funding there for sort of the ongoing maintenance investment and use it to try to build communities that can that can help to sustain the software. But that's I mean, that's a hard thing to think about. Right. Like, I think that that's that's not something that most software engineers think about. And it's not necessarily something that most researchers think about is how to actually sustain the product like that. I'm wondering for uh, getting contributions specifically that must be influenced by um, academic cycles as well, right? So if you have people that are contributing, I guess, like while they're doing their postdoc and then like afterwards they stop, is that a thing? Yeah, that that's actually, yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think that might be another aspect of, you know, the research funding structure that maybe doesn't work so well as a long-term sustainability strategy. I think, you know, in, in research, you're really encouraged to be like a PI, a principal investigator, and and to start new things. And so, you know, to advance your career in research, you need to publish, you need to run things, you need to get grants, you need to start new projects. Um, but, you know, maintaining the old thing doesn't get you, you know, additional research kudos necessarily. I think some projects have, have managed to make it do that. I think they, you know, projects that are widely used, like I mentioned the Rose compiler here, they publish tons of papers um, and they always have new collaboration going on, you know, some piece of their compiler infrastructure. But, you know, there, there's only certain products that can do that. So, like, you know, we have a paper on SPAC. Um, we we have a paper um, about it, it. We submitted it to the state of the practice track um, at Supercomputing, which is uh, the big conference in in my area. Um, and I think that, you know, got us a lot of publicity. Um, but, you know, how we would publish more papers or, you know, continue to publish papers about it is, is up in the air. So we have to rely on the programmatic funding there and, and on actual software developers and not just, you know, researchers. Can you talk a little bit about um, Exascale? Because I think you mentioned that that's a project where the focus has been on actually developing the software and not just on writing papers or getting funding that way. Um, so how did that happen? Um, so, I mean, the Exascale Computing Project is, um, it's a major collaboration between the six uh, national laboratories. So it's Livermore, um, Los Alamos, uh, Sandia, Argonne, Oak Ridge, and uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and also um, PNNL is in there as well. Um, that's Pacific Northwest National Lab. And, and I think some other labs are collaborating. Um, but it's it's a project to design uh, or to, to build um, a software stack for an exascale computer. And so what that means is we like to measure things in flops um, in HPC, where a flop is a floating point operation. I think your typical web application doesn't deal so much with, with flops. And an exascale machine would be capable of a billion, billion um, flops. And so that's floating point operations per second. Um, so there are plans to build, you know, large exascale machines, um, and and this project is to design the um, the software stack. So that's at exascaleproject.org, and um, that that was sort of motivated by an immediate need to go and actually build a software stack, so that when the exascale machine gets here, um, which is something that we're we're planning to do. Um, that we actually have scientific code that can run on it. And another focus of the project is to make it so that industry uh, can actually take advantage of some of the things that we built. Because, I mean, they, there's 15 or so simulation codes in the Exascale project um, from everything from, like, you know, nuclear fusion to the climate community to, um, you know, molecular dynamics. Um, there's, there's lots of useful science there. 
um, that could be used and could have an impact on industry, like for you know, making cars better, making uh, more you know clean energy in in different areas. Um, but we'd like the industry folks to be able to use that. So, you know, the the project is definitely focused on delivering that software stack. You know, I'm I'm involved in it in two ways. One is with SPAC, and so you know, I would like SPAC to be sort of the package manager that's used for the US Exascale project. So that that's how we deploy things on supercomputers. That's how we build things, and that's how we make it easy for say someone in industry to pick up. Um, one of these codes and use it. Um, and I'm also the lead on a software productivity project. I'm, I'm the Livermore lead on a software productivity project. Mike Haru and Lois Kerfman McInnes um, from Sandia and Argon are, are the main leads on this. Um, but there's actually like an effort within this project um, because it has to deliver software to make the developers more productive. And, and so that involves things like putting training out there, sort of familiarizing um, scientists and some of these computational scientists who develop the applications um, with how to build communities and how to, um, you know, write documentation, how to use source control well, how to have a release cycle, um, things like that. And so, I mean, you know, I think it's a it's kind of new territory in a lot of ways because I don't think we've had a coordinated effort to build a software stack quite this large. And, to, and so um, one of the things we've been talking about lately is how do we coordinate releases of 15 applications in 80 different software projects? And, and, you know, that's, that's not easy. Um, and do we need a coordinated release cycle or should we just have, you know, should we teach the teams to, you know, kind of release things on their own pace? Um, those are things we're, we're kind of debating there. And just to clarify, that is an open source software stack. Um, so not all of it is open source. Um, so for okay. example, like, you know, some of our weapons simulations are included in the Exascale project, um, cause they need to be able to run on Exascale machines, but those are not open source. Sorry. Phew. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but but in large part, like, you know, a lot of the science parts of it and a lot of like the math libraries and the the computer science infrastructure are open source. And so, you know, this is stuff that people could build on. Like, I think it would be really awesome if we could build simulation frameworks and things that someone could come along and build like an open source code on top of because that helps both um, Livermore and um, other organizations out. Um, And, you know, actually, like our our code teams are sort of starting to think about that. So like we have um, we recently had an effort internally to look at like how our simulations are structured. And I think they found that, you know, something like 40, 50 percent of the code is actual just, you know, pure computer science, no physics, nothing sensitive. Um, And so that part could be factored out as like a general toolkit um, that we could use. And, And open sourcing that seems like a really good idea because we could get contributors and we could help, you know, open science with the stuff that we're building. So how do you get like industry contributors involved in, in situations like that? Do they come to the same sort of conferences that you do? Do you have to reach out to them individually? Well, I think that's a, yeah, that's a problem. So they don't always come to the same sorts of conferences. Um, industry HPC has always been, um, it's something that people shoot for, but not a lot of companies really get into it. There are companies like Exxon that have like HPC clusters and they kind of um, do their own specific simulations for things like oil wells how the ground is structured, what's going to happen when we drill here. And and those are um, really big users of HPC. Aerospace also, so like Boeing, the, the Boeings of the world. Um, but one of the goals of this project would be to sort of expand the middle tier um, of HPC. So like it's always been sort of elusive. Like we'd, we'd like to have, you know, smaller companies able to use these kinds of resources. Um, but I think, you know, the, the complexity of getting into, you know, supercomputing has been so high that they haven't um, necessarily jumped on board. But, you know, there, there are really good success stories for um, using HPC in industry. Actually, like, so I think um, Procter & Gamble, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he came out here and gave a talk about all the different ways that they use HPC. And, and you know, you, you've heard of Procter & Gamble, I guess, but 
they have lots of companies um, under them that they run. And so he talked about how they had used simulation for everything from making the diaper production line more um, efficient <laughs> and to um, making better, you know, scentless detergents and things like this um, or improving like the way that um, detergents are mixed. So there's all these applications out there that people could um, take advantage of this stuff. But I think, you know, before we get industry contributors, we're going to have to make it a lot easier. Um, the other the other problem with getting um, industry contributors, I think, is that um, in many cases for something as complex as like a piece of simulation software, the industry folks really want someone to um, support it. They want someone to to call and to say, you know, we're having problems deploying this. What do we do? And so, you know, I think for that, we would have to look into starting, you know, small companies to support parts of this infrastructure, right? Or to, you know, have maybe a support contract for like an, an Exxon or a, or a P&G. Oh, well, we're going to close out on that note. Um, do you have any final thoughts to share about lessons learned from your experiences um, open sourcing in fairly, I'd say, comparably difficult contexts? Um, you know, I think like, so one of the things that I've learned from SPAC, I guess, is that you really have to think about the broader context. Um, for the thing that you're building. And and that means giving up some degree of control. So like, I think there are a lot of projects where, you know, they've, they've grown up in one lab and they've served that one team and they could be more broadly useful, but, you know, making it easy for people to either jump in and contribute or to pick up the thing and use it for maybe something that the authors didn't intend. Um, it wasn't always like one of the team's goals. And so, I mean, for SPAC, we've been, we've tried to be really open about contributions, maybe not necessarily implementing things for people, but, you know, helping them um, to implement things and thinking outside of our own use case. Um, and, and so, you know, that's how, it, one of the ways that I think we've gotten contributors and that's how I think we've been able to, to grow our community. I think that's a general open source problem. <laughs> a lot of people who start <laughs> projects don't want to give up control, but they want people to work on it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. And, and teaching people to do that. I mean, actually, you know, that's, that's one thing I could, I could say is like a lot of our teams are scared of what will happen if they put, um, something out there is open source and they start to get a lot of pull requests. They're like, you know, well, what, what do I do? Like, I'm going to have to support all these things or, you know, how do I deal with this? And so one thing we're trying to do here is, is teach people to to deal with those contributions and to say, you know, I don't I don't have time to implement that, um, but we can help you and we can maybe improve the documentation in that area and then you can contribute. And we'll have to figure out how to maintain that feature because maybe we're not going to use it. So, you know, just being open to things like that, I think, can go a long way. Um, and then, you know, I don't have a silver bullet for the <laughs> how do we maintain this feature you contributed after after you contributed it. I think that's a harder problem and you have to get creative. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks for coming on. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. Thank you for tuning in to Request for Commits. We love to explore different perspectives in open source sustainability, and this show is about the human side of code. If you enjoy this show, share it with a friend, help us, help others discover the show too, and thanks to our sponsors, Linode and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's produced by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. The awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you can find more episodes just like this at changelaw.com. Thanks for listening.